यू आर लिस्निंग टू अमिंट प्रोडक्शन प्रॉट यू बाय एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट मार्च ऑफ नाइनटीन नाइन वॉज अ टर्निंग पॉइंट इन इंडिया हिस्ट्री द चंद्रशेखर गवर्नमेंट प्रेजेंटेड एन इंटरम बजट इन द फोर्थ ऑफ मार्च फाइनेंस मिनिस्टर यशवंत सिन्हा स्पोक इन द बजट स्पीच ऑफ अ फ्रिजाइल इकोनॉमिक सिचुएशन एंड अ माइक्रो इकोनॉमिक क्राइसिस बट कुड नॉट टेक करेक्टिव स्टेप्स रिक्वायर्ड बिकॉज द गवर्नमेंट वॉज पोलिटिकली टू वीक बाई मे नाइनटीन नाइन इंटरनेशनल रेटिंग एजेंसीज है डाउनग्रेडेड इंडिया टू बिलो इन्वेस्टमेंट ग्रेड इंडिया वॉज ऑन द ब्रिंक ऑफ डिफॉल्ट ऑन इट्स इंटरनेशनल ऑब्लिगेशंस something that had never happened before mr sinha authorized the state bank of india to sell 20 tons of gold from the government of india's stock to the union bank of switzerland he also authorized negotiations for pledging 47 tons of gold from the reserves as collateral for a loan of 600 million dollars from the bank of japan and the bank of england they insisted that the gold should be physically shipped to their vaults in london On 21st June 1991 a new government headed by PV Narasimharao was sworn in. It brought the crisis under control and reversed the economic policies of interventionism India had stuck to in the first four decades post independence. These decisions changed the Indian economy unimaginably. Welcome to India's reform story. I'm your host Pooja Mehra. I'm an independent journalist and podcaster and the author of The Lost Decade 2008 to 18: How India's Growth Story Devolved into Growth Without a Story. India's Reform Story is a seven-part podcast in a series of seven conversations with economists, policymakers and commentators. I will unpack the story behind India's reforms and find out what went on behind the scenes and how successive prime ministers from Atal Bihari Vajpayee to Narendra Modi have taken these reforms forward. The Modi government's reform initiatives are not at an advanced stages yet. It is not clear what shape they may finally take and what results they will finally yield. How they will ultimately change lives and the economy. I asked Dr. Sujit Palla to detail the important reforms initiatives of the Modi government, especially the changes introduced in the farm laws that are being resisted by protesting farmers. Dr. Palla is an executive director for India on the board of the International Monetary Fund. Dr. Bhalla, as you know, farmers have been protesting in Delhi's very cruel winter about the changes introduced in the farm laws by the Modi government, and many economists have said that the political handling of these changes and the situation that they have triggered could have been better. But I wanted to ask you that you know, if you were to explain to the protesting farmers why the Modi government's reforms are necessary and positive and should not be feared. what would you say to people who have these concerns the farm laws allow more freedom to each individual farmer to do as she finds best if she finds the apmc market the best she can continue to do so there's nothing in the laws that says she shall not go to an apmc it only allows you more freedom and that is what i mean this is the very first time i've seen protests without any kind of a logical basis if you can offer me something that they are protesting a protest means i demand i am being hurt i and it is unfair hurt and i demand a change what is a change that they want other than to go back to the status quo 
which is something that hurts the other farmers. They have three concerns from what I gather. One is they fear their land will be taken away. How exactly, I'm also not sure. Two, they want a legal guarantee for MSPs. Three, they fear that this is going to eliminate the role of the Mundis uh, over a period of time and uh, leave them at the mercy of corporate buyers only. I think those seem to be, according to my understanding of the situation, their fears. So let us take each one in turn. First, that the land will be taken away from them. Is that what I understand you to say? Well, let us assume the laws were not changed. So according to the farmers, why, what is it in the laws that allows land to be taken away? That is not there in the present status quo. Then you have about corporate farmers exploiting them. Well, you know, <laughs> they can choose not to sell to the corporate. What the farmer can do is organize the other farmers not to sell to the corporate. One, she cannot sell, may not sell to the corporate. Absolutely fine. That's in her right. Nothing in the law says she has to sell to a corporate. Nothing in the law says that she cannot democratically go and talk to the other farmers. Oh, oh, don't sell to the corporate because, you know, they're going to exploit you. So that takes care of that argument. Then we are left with a legal guarantee for the MSP. So they want a new law. So far, there has not been a legal guarantee for the MSP. I won't even go into how exploitative the MSP is for the poor farmers. Let's not get in there. Unless you want to ask, I will respond. So they want a legal guarantee for the MSPs, which was never before existed, either in India or anywhere else in the world. So these are the three objections that you found were somewhat reasonable. And I hope I've shown that they are beyond reason. Would you, would you like to make a case for income support instead of the distortionary MSB? Yeah. Now, income support, you know, this is one of the major reforms that the Modi government has brought about over the last five years. I'm glad you asked that. Direct benefit transfers, which is income support. They already have an income support of 6,000 rupees per farmer, etc. We can discuss that. I think... DBTs is a very efficient way to solve income distribution problems. Okay. Now I'll tell you why these farmers who are protesting will not like that. You may be offering the income support argument. I'm offering the income support argument, but any sensible income support argument has to be based on what income you have. If you are very, very rich, I'm sure you're not arguing that Ambani should be given income support. These farmers, these rich farmers, as I tried to show in the article, are in the top 2% of all income earners. All income earners in India, they are in the top 2%. You think they should be getting income support? That is why your recommendation and my recommendation of income support will not be accepted by these farmers. Because they won't get the income support. 
but the people you worked on poverty, I worked on poverty, the people who should be helped are not being helped. So one last point on this, on the farmers, but I'm happy to go for, you know, the Punjab government, which is where the, the most of the protesters are Punjabs, Punjabi Sikhs, most of them Sikhs. Now, and you know, they're finding this, the Punjabi Sikhs are finding this, um, the MSP system, the existing system, etc. Very profitable. They're not sending people out to the army anymore. They'd rather just stay on the farm and be in the top 2% earners. So when the Punjab government itself got a report, I think it's dated June, on response to COVID, which was uh, has a forward by the chief minister, uh, very eminent, some of the most eminent economists in India worked on it, Monte Kaluvalia and Ashok Gulati, amongst others. They recommended exactly the same laws. Although there is some criticism of the manner in which it has taken shape and how it needs to be corrected, but yet, you know, GST is a reform, if you, if you could talk about the merits of it. No, I don't think... The GST needs any defense. It was agreed upon by all political parties. It was one of the most sensible reforms, much needed, unanimous. Uh, though I'm waiting for some economists to come out and say maybe the GST is bad economics, but or bad politics for that matter. So let me know if there is somebody who does that. But you know, this this had the GST is universal. Let me go out on a limb and say universal support. International organizations, domestic organization, opposition economists, party economists, cross party lines. And it's a work in progress. You know, it's not an look, it got introduced in June of 2017, barely three years ago. It's a complete revamp of the way we do trade in India across states. And there are computational issues involved. There is um, compliance issues involved. There's escape issues. You know, in India, the uh, tax compliance rate is low. We are just like we're very good at imagining protests. Uh, we are very good at escaping taxes. So it's a challenge. And I must say, and I, you know, uh, wrote about this very same issue uh, when I was in India, that I've been very pleasantly surprised as to how consensual the um, GST reforms have been. You know, they've come a long way from where they started in 17. And I think there's a lot further to go. Many of us feel there should be only two rates. Uh, some of us feel there should be only one rate. All of us, I think, think that the peak rate is too high. So it is a work in progress. I think it's one of the most significant reforms. I think the agricultural reform will be even more significant than this for India because 40% of the people workforce is in agriculture. Uh, I think it will transform agriculture, but we can discuss. So I think the GST is, is not perfect needs reform, is continuously being reformed. They have got a procedure set up, uh, the National Council, they meet, the finance ministers meet. It's a, it's a gem of a reform. And I think, you know, that's not to say it's working perfectly. 
not at all. And it's been very open. All sides have been very open. And that's as it should be. And the corporate tax rate cuts announced by uh, Finance Minister Nirmala Sitaraman, a lot of people criticize it because they see it as a pro-rich move. But, you know, the economics of it, and especially given the international comparisons, internationally tax rates have been going down and India does compete with other investment destinations. So if you would like to say something about well, that as a simplification yeah. well, measure. A couple of things on the corporate uh, tax rate. It's interesting you see, uh, you state, and I factually, that the objection to it is that it favors the rich. But, you know, we've just been talking for 20 minutes about the 2% richest farmers in India. And some of these economists are supporting these 2%. So I think, you know, you've studied Indian economics and politics enough. When in doubt, say it supports the rich. But curiously, uh, I really want to emphasize that on the farm laws, they haven't said uh, that the existing farm laws support the rich. So I think uh, we can dismiss that argument. The second part of it, and I think, again, the corporate tax cut, you know, left open. And I think it was a brilliant move. And I said it ex ante way before. And as part of our HLAG report, arguing that we needed uh, our tax rates to be competitive, internationally competitive, precisely what you just said. If I, I think, you know, when... uh, the finance minister, Ms. when she announced the the tax cut, she said that new firms would be at 15 percent or new yeah new firms would be at 15 percent. So it, in other words, I think there is room for further cuts. I would personally think the analysis suggests that our corporate tax cut, our corporate tax rates should be cut further. But, you know. We have to worry about, look, this will favor the rich. So, Also revenue implications. You know, uh, look, I have been a long, long, ardent believer in the Laffer curve. And indeed, the Indian personal income tax rate, uh, as well as, you know, I think uh, the form of the direct tax code is sorely needed. And I think part of our, a large part of our problems arise because of compliance. And compliance is directly affected by the rate of taxation. Let's do a simple mental calculation. You know, in order to evade taxes, you, you know, spend in through various channels about five to 10 percentage points in order to bring your tax rate down. Now, it's much better for the government to get that money. So, you know, and that's study after study has shown this across the world, uh, not just in India, that there is a Laffer curve. Very simply, that at at zero rate of taxation, you'll get zero revenue. At 100% rate of taxation, you'll get zero revenue. So, and it's, you know, it's an empirical inverted U and we have been quite to the right side. So we have garnered less revenue uh, than we should have. So I think on corporate taxes, uh, that was a big significant cut. But, you know, remember our tax rate came after the U.S. reduced its corporate tax 
and other competitors have also reduced. So you have to keep up. You know, this is part of globalization that I think capital is very, very mobile between regions, between countries, and they will seek and go wherever the tax rate is the most advantageous. Now, all countries or no country will go to a zero percent tax rate or, you know, but you have to be competitive. If if you want me to, uh, and I've done some studies on it, a corporate tax rate of about 15 percent seems to be where most of the countries converge to. So we are, and that was very much, uh, we had in the HLAG report, 18% as the corporate tax rate, recommended tax rate. And that was, you know, there were 12 of us in there, uh, 12 experts, and I'll go along with that. That at a first step, we should move towards about 18%. The direct tax code should be adopted and implemented because the Indian tax law is now very old. It was first written in the 1960s, I think, and it's been amended so many times. It's confusing in many places. It contradicts different parts of it, contradict each other. And it's it's just no longer in tune with it. It hasn't kept in uh, uh, with the changing modern economy. Yeah, I will sound like a broken record, but I've had the privilege of attending the finance minister's meetings with economists every year for the last uh, 15, 20 years. And I have said very exactly what uh, you have, you're also arguing for. Uh, we need a reform of the direct tax code. And again, this is something that has a cross party, the beginning of the direct tax code. Actually, it's a very interesting history. It started with under Bajpai and the Kelka report, uh, which I had the privilege of working on uh, back in 2003, four on reform of the direct tax code and reform of the indirect tax. So, and ever since then, there was a report in, I think, 2008-9 on the reform of the direct tax code. And then there was yet another one, the Arvind Modi report. And each new report, I think, uh, is better than the last one. I have some, you know, slightly difference of opinion with the Arvind Modi report, as, as economists always will. You know, I had, along with Arvind Vermani, argued for flat tax back in 2016-17. Uh, and then we met with a lot of objections. So we, I think, moved it to a two-rate uh, uh, tax code. So if you're asking for my view, it's part of the public record. And I think uh, the peak tax rate income tax rate should not be anything more than 20%. All in all, I have, I, I think it's especially the foreign investment opening up has been absolutely first rate, you know, couldn't have been done better. And, you know, the record of this government, and I wrote about this three years ago, so therefore it's only accelerated since then, on economic reforms is really extraordinary. And you know, uh, at that time, I wrote that there have been more economic reforms in the last five years than in the previous since 1991. So uh, in all the years since 91. So, I, you know, you take the GST, you take the direct benefit transfers, you take the jam, jam trinity, you know, the poverty, the direct benefit support to farmers. You know, there's a IBC, which we haven't talked about. And the only reason I think this is also a mega reform, 
and you know as we still have long ways to go one other thing while we are talking on economic reforms that i want to point out should be of interest to you and your readers and your listeners is that you know the imf has come up with a policy tracker which you know as to how the countries have responded to covid and the policy tracker takes into account the short term policies that previous governments 180 governments around the world have done to attack the pandemic there hasn't been a parallel attempt and i'm trying to i'm substantially well on the way to do that that to look at the structural reforms that have been brought in by the countries remember you are one of those i also fully subscribe to the notion of never waste a crisis and india has been extraordinary in not wasting the crisis in bringing about substantial economic reforms and if you do a study which i hope to publish soon there are about 10 countries that's it that undertook structural reforms during this time period and india's way ahead of anybody else any other country on bringing about structural reforms so you know all in all leaving politics aside i think the judgment has to be that this has been an extraordinary time for economic reforms in india and the government needs to be congratulated on it uh, do you want to say something on what the uh, these structural reforms are seeking to accomplish in terms of is it a deepening or a widening of the market economy so in which case it would be a continuation of the economic thinking that has guided broadly whatever reforms that have taken place in after 1991 you know be it in the vajpayee government or uh, in the narsimha rao government or is it some new ideology because, because there is a mood globally you know where trust uh, once again in markets is sort of reducing so what's what's sort of the guiding principle of these uh, yeah and you know uh, very good question i and my assessment of the guiding principle is that basically there are two components to the reforms of the modi reforms and let me give the what i consider the less important uh, one first which is to provide more freedom more economic freedom more market oriented policies that increase the openness of the market increase competition at the same time and this is the most significant reform of this period is what they've done for the bottom 50 60 70% of the population the reforms there for example in terms of sanitation the in terms of improvement of the welfare of the 60 70% the dbt is there the jam trinity is there bank accounts just look at the bank accounts for women and you know they have shot up then it's not i remember that the criticism was oh the bank accounts have been opened but they're not using it well the latest survey i'm sure you've seen that shows a very large increase in access to bank accounts and use of bank accounts by women so i think in terms of gender equality and which is really you don't need gender equality and people women of your class don't need gender equality but of my class be that as it may but you know bottom 70% women 
have really benefited and the bottom 50% have even benefited more. So I think this idea, and you know, I discussed this and other people, it's not a, a new idea that the more the world gets, and certainly the Western world has been facing that since we saw the effects of it in Brexit in 2016, as well as in uh, Trump's election in 2016, that the wage of the median wage has not increased, had not increased in the U.S. for the last 35 years and only now in the last three years. So the point I'm trying to make there is that with globalization, I think all countries have to make a special effort, have to change their policies so that the bottom 50% not only do not get hurt, but they improve. And I want to mention one more reform while we add it, one more development in India, which I think is about the most encouraging. But first and foremost, the primary responsibility of any government, especially democratic governments, is to provide benefits and improve the welfare of the bottom 50, 60 percent, 70 percent. And this government has done that much more than any other. The reform or the development that I wanted to discuss with you and wanted to mention about in India is the number. India has the largest share of STEM graduates who are women. That is, you take all college graduates and India has the largest share in women in those. So in other words, this is something, it's an ongoing, I'm not attributing it to any one policy. This is a long-term policy, but you know, more than the US, the US has, I think, 9% of its workforce in uh, STEM graduates and in India has 26% of the entire, or, if you look at only women graduates in India, that's about 43% of women graduates in India are in STEM disciplines. This is, you know, beyond remarkable and shows that, you know, the extraordinary change that is happening in India, positive change that's happening. So I think you have large strides in education in India, especially for women. Uh, there are more female undergraduates than they are male undergraduates right now in India. Okay. Oxford University reached that status in 2018 and that has been there for a thousand years. So, you know, we have to uh, really be cognizant of the wide ranging change that is happening in India and, and really, you know, the elites never get hurt. So, you know, one should be looking at policy. And when they get hurt, they go and protest in the streets and make life difficult for residents of Delhi and all other India. But the policy, the primary goal of every government is to help the bottom two thirds. And uh, this government has done it in spades. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. You're welcome. Let me end this episode with an excerpt from a piece Dr. Ashok Desai wrote to take stock of the 1991 reforms, 10 years after they were initiated. Dr. Desai was picked by Dr. Manmohan Singh to be the chief economic advisor on his team of reformers for the 1991 reforms. In this piece titled, A Decade of Reforms, Dr. Desai wrote, We in this country tend to think of reforms as we do of domestic repairs. 
call a plumber to fix a leak, an electrician to deal with a misbehaving tube light, a mason to stop a leak. This is the thinking reflected in government announcements. There are labor reforms, power reforms, and insurance reforms, all isolated, standalone improvements, each adding to the beauty of the House of India. Actually, an economy is a machine rather than a house. Everything in it is interconnected with everything else. So if one fixes a leak in one place, it may burst a wall somewhere else. If one is to avoid expensive mistakes, one has to understand the economy as a whole. And being the finance ministry in 1991, we're not just trying to fix a leak. We were trying to improve the machine so that it would work better for all time. Such basic repairs give excellent results if they succeed. But they're also more risky. And then the economy is a machine that acts slowly. One may do something today and the effects may become evident years later. Hence, one has to understand not just the mechanics, but also the dynamics of the economy. It's a terribly complicated machine, not even the best economists understand it quite fully. And let me say quite frankly that we who undertook the reforms were not the best economists. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.